The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, as most of you know me, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com. You can listen to us every Wednesday live, 10 to 11, on Voice America and World Talk Radio, and we archive the show at the end of the day so you can listen to it anytime. Uh, we're going to be talking about health today, healthy lifestyles, and I have two guests here who are going to talk about that. Uh, my first guest is a, uh, a doctor, a physician, a community p- pediatrician, and registered dietitian, so she's got lots of credentials. Uh, her new book is um, Eat Your Vegetables and Other Mistakes Parents Make, Redefining How to Raise Healthy Eaters, uh, Natalie Digamuth, uh, MD, and we're, she not only talks about in a book about, with kids and how to eat healthy, but she herself suffered from obesity problems when she was younger, so she has a real special interest and a mission to get our kids to be eating healthy, which is obviously very important. Our second guest also is about healthy living, uh, Harvard Medical School Executive Wellness Coach and Change Specialist, Margaret Moore, a.k.a. Coach Med. Meg has uh, co-authored a book, uh, with Dr. Paul Hammerness. He's an MD, Harvard Medical School, and their book is called Organize Your Mind and Organize Your Life. Um, but uh, first guest is here with us right now, uh, the good doctor, Dr. Natalie Digamuth, MD, MPH, and RD, all kinds of credentials. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you very much, Catherine. It's a pleasure to be on. Okay, well, this is a huge topic, literally a huge topic, getting our kids to eat well. Obesity is the number one problem in our country, not only with kids, but with the parents. So what, doctor, what makes your book unique? Everybody's talking about it. Everybody's writing about it. We don't seem to have come up with a solution to get our kids to eat well, as well as their parents, but we'll start with the kids. You know, as a pediatrician, I see lots of children who are suffering from not just childhood obesity, but just growing in weight and size too fast or kind of being at risk. And I've realized, and you know, my colleagues have also realized there's a huge disconnect between what we want our kids to eat and what our kids are actually eating. And it's not really, for the most part, for lack of parents trying or lack of parents knowing what's good for their kids. A lot of it has to do with the struggle that parents have in actually getting their kids to eat the stuff. So what makes this book different and what I'm trying to help get out there is it's not just about what we want our kids to eat. It's about how we're teaching our kids to go about eating and how we're approaching healthy eating within the family structure. All right, so, Doctor, what are we doing wrong in terms of how we're getting our kids to eat? Because I think that's a really important distinction, the one you just made. You know, you eat your vegetables. We know that vegetables are good for you, but how you get your kids to eat those vegetables, you're saying, is the issue, the process in terms of how you get them to do it, eat well. Um, so, yeah. 
Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I, I really think so. In, in the book, you know, it's called Eat Your Vegetables and Other Mistakes Parents Make. The focus is really on helping parents to have the strategies to, to not make the mistakes or to help their kids want to eat healthy. But the book is organized in a way. These are all things that our parents did for us, we're doing for our kids, and it really can help sabotage our plans to raise healthy eaters. For example, as the book is named, Eat Your Vegetables by telling our kids, you must eat your vegetables. You have to eat your vegetables. I'm not letting you get out of the table until you've done eating your vegetables. The kids are like, whoa, whoa, okay, hold on here. So first of all, parents are making me do it. Well, their kids are little human beings with minds of their own, so they're going to inherently resist this coercion that comes from their parents, and they have very little control in their lives, but they do have control over what they put in their mouth. So just by parents forcing them makes them like it less. And they stop and think, hey, okay, wait a minute. This must be really disgusting if my mom or my dad is so insistent that I eat it. They don't tell me that I have to eat my cookies or my dessert. Like, what's going on? Another mistake that parents, every parent has made because it's so easy to make because it's so effective is using food as a reward. In the short term, yes, it will get those kids to do exactly what you want them to do. You want to reward them for being good at the doctor's office, give them a sucker. They'll be happy. But what happens is it sets the stage for kids to turn to those foods, which typically are high in fat, high in sugar, not so good for their bodies, to turn to those foods later on in life to recreate that happy feeling, or it has this association that makes them feel better, so they're going to rely on these snacks for reasons other than an occasional treat every now and then. Okay, so and those, it, those are two major mistakes that you just yes. mentioned. Let's just take one and two. Like one, you say trying to force vegetables on kids. The first thing is, whoa, they're trying to force this stuff on me. I don't want it. And when you try to force anything on anybody, you know, whether it's an adult or a kid, I think the reaction is well, you, you don't want to do it. I mean, just initially. So then what do you do? How do you, let's take that one. That's not the right way to do it. So how do you do it? How do you Absolutely. encourage them to eat their vegetables? Or, and we're using vegetables in a generic sense, aren't we? I mean, good food. Healthy food. Food Healthy that food. Kid, exactly. Although vegetables tend to be the healthy food that kids are most resistant to trying, in large part because they, a lot of vegetables taste bitter, and we're just born with not really caring for bitter taste so much, although it can be learned, just like an adult learns to like coffee or tea, which is inherently bitter, or beer. So... How do you get your kids to want to eat their vegetables so you don't have to force them to do so? Well, there's a few, a few important strategies that, that parents should try. One is to just relax a little bit about it. That pressure, that coercion, that the kids seeing how invested the parent is in those vegetables makes it much harder for the kid to actually want to willingly give it a try. Another thing is the food has got to taste good. Kids like what tastes good. There's been lots of studies that's trying to understand, okay, what will get a kid to eat something? And the kid has to think that, that it tastes good. So we have to make these vegetables and fruits taste good. But you might say, well, okay, that tastes good, but how do I get the kid to actually even try it to know that it tastes good? And there's a few things that have played out time and again that are effective. One is letting the kid have some control or some uh power in deciding what food is available. So this means, you know, you have a picky eater who is refusing everything. Okay, so say that picky eater. You know what, Sam, we're going to have a vegetable tonight. Which one would you like? What should we try? Or what fruit would you like us to have at dinner tonight? Bring the child to the grocery store. Let them play a part in picking out the food. Better yet, have a little windowsill herb garden or a little bit, a little garden in the backyard, something where the kid can actually see how a plant grows Go to the farmer's market if you can't do this home. And see, be invested in the actual food, helping to make the food, 
all of these things that get the child involved is going to make them more willing to want to give it a try when it comes to dinner time. Yeah, and I think that the relationship with food and the relationship with the parent, which you've kind of touched on, is all involved in this. Like it's all it's a becomes a control issue. Uh, you know, with, with you, that's one way kids, little kids have a, you know, as a social worker or as a therapist, I mean, that's the one way they can control their parents and uh, it works beautifully. It can work, right? Um, yeah, and you yeah, can really, it, yeah, get it, entangled it really, in that. It really, it, and a lot of what I try to talk about in the book, you know, it's partly about nutrition and it's partly about the psychology of this interaction between kids and their parents and how parents can help their kids. It, it's really about how parents can help their kids feel like the kid has some control, which they have some control, but ultimately the parent is the one who's in charge, and that's well understood. And, and the idea of this is, is called authoritative parenting, which a lot of parents may have heard about before. This is really the idea that the parent sets the stage for a child to be successful. They're involved in the child, but not so overbearing that the kid feels, feels claustrophobic or kind of, you know, these helicopter parents that are overly involved. And when it comes to eating, we call this a division of responsibility. And what that means is the parent chooses what foods are available in the home. The parent is responsible for making sure that the child has access to healthy foods and doesn't have so much access to the junk food. The parents decide when the food is going to be offered. So parents control meal times. Parents control snack times. The child gets to decide of the food that's available, of the food that's offered to them at the dinner table, which of those foods they're going to eat and how much of each of the food they're going to eat. That gives the child control. It also helps the child to use their internal feelings of hunger and fullness to decide how much to eat rather than how much a parent puts on their plate or how much a parent forces them to eat, which it's been well studied, well known that we overestimate by a lot how much food our children need to eat. And when we force them to eat when they're not hungry, we take away their ability to use their feelings of hunger and fullness to guide intake, and they start to eat for reasons other than hunger. I mean, that is so well said. And uh, and I want to add to that. This is a little bit off, but what do you, when you have, I mean, if, uh, you know, the statistics, half of us, not I, but half of the country is overweight or obese, or even I think it's even more than that right now. And I quote this statistic yeah. probably, it is what? Two-thirds. 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 So mm-hmm. you've got parents who are sitting there who are at best overweight and at worst obese, uh, trying to encourage kids to eat well. So how does that fit into the kid's perception of, like, what's good food? And look at, you know, my parents telling me to eat this or eat well or make choices about vegetables, and yet they're sitting there stuffing themselves on potato chips and ice cream and dip. So what, how does that fit into all of this? Catherine, you, you bring up an excellent point, and, and in, in the book I call this mistake failing to live it, which really is just gets at modeling and how essential it is for parents to be the example, to be the people that they want their children to become. Kids are watching. As any parent knows who's accidentally said a, a cuss word and heard it come out of their two-year-old's mouth, you know, down the road, or who's done something and seen that their child picked up on it, even though the parent wasn't paying attention to what the kid was doing, knows kids are watching their parents kids know what's going on so if a parent in one you know out of their mouth is saying you need to really eat healthy and then the child sees them gorging themselves on junk food the the gorging themselves on junk food is much more powerful much more influential than anything a parent can say this may be the hardest part but it's the most critical if a parent wants to raise a healthy eater wants to raise an active child that parent has to be committed to 
eating healthy and being active themselves. They don't have to be perfect. We're all human. We all struggle. But the kids have got to see that the parents are really trying to walk the walk. Yeah, I think it's real. Another today, at least in America, this overabundance of food. I don't think we've ever lived in a time uh, or an era where all of this food is available. There's food available to most people all of the time, and uh, I think this is a big pro- big issue. Uh, I, you know, I'm not sure exactly how this fits into like what you've written in your book, but how do you address that? I mean, the kids that have food available not only in their own house but at their friend's house and at school, and there's really the, the schools are having difficulty providing good choices. And kids spend all day in school. They probably spend more day, you know, more time in school than they do at home. Exactly. So it fits in really well to books. What people ask me all the time is, okay, yeah, but these things that you're talking about as mistakes, my parents did them with me, their parents did that with them, we all turned out okay, everything is going to be fine, what is different now? And the thing that's different now, and the reason that a lot of these old strategies don't work anymore is because the environment in which our kids are growing up is dramatically different than the environment in which we grew up. Like you say, they have access to unlimited calories. There's overabundance of, of calories for a kid to eat. And, you know, if, if they could, based on how much food is available, they could just eat, eat all day long and continue to put on the calories. But most of those calories comes from junk food, nutritionally poor foods, high in fat, high in saturated fat, high in calories, high in salt. And kids are not as active as they once were. They're not able to go outside and run around like they used to or spend hours and hours burning off energy. Instead, they're spending a lot of time inside, in front of screens, watching TV, playing video games, playing on the iPhone, whatever it is. And so the environment is different. Fortunately, there's a lot of momentum in this area right now. There's been just this year changes in the school lunch so that foods are much healthier. They have higher nutritional standards than they ever had. People are paying attention on, on a larger scale and policy level. People and communities, governments are really making a lot of changes to help it become easier for kids and adults to eat healthier and be more active. We still have a long way to go, but there's some encouraging evidence coming out that it's starting to work. There's recently some data coming out of Massachusetts as well as Philadelphia that the obesity rates among kids have stabilized or even decreased in the past several years. The data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention on the rate of obesity in the United States have shown stabilization across pretty much every group except a couple of small kind of specialized groups that are still gaining, which happens to be our lower income, lower SES groups, which we really need to spend a lot of time um, trying to help. But overall, it is difficult to be healthy, but fortunately things are changing so that it's becoming a little bit easier. Well, that's good news, and that was kind of it leads me into my next question because, you know, just as we say that parents have to be examples to their children, are there communities in the United States, and I guess you mentioned too by you talking about Boston and Philadelphia, where they are doing a good job, where the obesity rates are declining, and can we look to them as role models? Yeah, and this is, you know, those are two examples that have just recently had data. I'm sure that there are many more communities that are making these changes and starting to have some positive um, outcomes. I know that here I live in San Diego area, and there's a large-scale initiative, the San Diego Childhood Obesity Initiative, which has really involved stakeholders from every domain that you can think of, healthcare, government, activity, schools, and is really making large-scale efforts to try to make it easier for people to to be healthier and be more active. And I think that, you know, listeners can find examples even within their own communities. There's a lot of momentum going on, but there's still, there still is really a lot of work to be done. And for a resource for people to go, the Let's Move campaign that Michelle Obama has kind of spearheaded in getting 
people moving. There's a there's a part of it that's called let's move um, towns and communities or, or something kind of along those lines that people could could look up and get really specific examples of of places that are making a difference. Oh, that's that's fantastic. Let's move and let's move towns and communities. Um, this is M- Michelle Obama's project, which I think is fantastic. Uh, and I guess we are doing it. That's good news. You know, one of the things I was thinking as you were talking about the, the the topic, when I grew up, my mother had a really good approach. She was a social worker, but she would uh, make vegetables and make food inviting and tasty, and uh, she took time to, to prepare everything. But, uh, you know, if we didn't want to eat, she would say, then don't eat it, and that's okay. But she never made other, gave us substitute for the food. If you didn't want to eat it, then don't eat it, and, it, you know, I'm, and and so, you know, consequently, I and my brothers, we are really good eaters. I kind of crave vegetables. I love good food. And uh, that was always a good tactic. So it didn't get into this power struggle that we were talking about earlier with, the, you know, with kids. It was fine. Don't eat it, but you're, you know, just and, – and, and, and kids will come back to it if they feel that it's their choice. As your mom was right on. She didn't need she didn't need my book at all because she really yeah. has it. She had it down just intuitively. She was the to your book. Well, you know, and she, she's exactly right. If we just relax a little bit, we create an opportunity for our kids to eat healthy. We make it more difficult for them to eat unhealthy because we just have the healthy stuff around. We don't cater to picky eaters. We don't make them separate meals. We make the food delicious and appealing to look at and something that kids are interested in wanting to try because it looks like it will be good and it's colorful. You know, food marketers add all these food dyes and everything to all this food to make kids want to eat it, make it colorful and appealing to children. Fruits and vegetables are inherently colorful. They can be inherently appealing to children. We have to make them look appealing. We have to package them in a way that kids want to try, make them taste good. Kids will go for it. And once they do, they'll come around, even if they don't automatically from the first try like the food, they'll come around um, to liking it. And, and to reassure parents, there's been a lot of research on this too that shows it can take kids 15 to 20 times of trying a food before they like it. So that broccoli that they rejected already five times now, don't call that rejected and never give them broccoli again. Prepare it in a little different form. Prepare it, put it in with some food that they already like so that they'll try it. And then with time, they'll come to develop a taste for the stuff and even crave the vegetables, as you say, because it's something that's in every part of their life and they see the benefit of it and they like how it tastes. Yeah, good idea. It's it, it's really all in the marketing is what you're talking about. You know, how are you going to market this food? Because they spend a lot of time marketing the junk food and all this stuff and packaging. We can do the same thing for the good stuff for the vegetables. But when I introduced you, I um, I introduced I said that uh, when you were younger, and I don't know how much younger, childhood obesity, that you suffered. You had your own personal struggle with childhood obesity. So how did that evolve? What you know, what was happening in your family, or not happening? Right. So um, I did, I struggled a lot with childhood obesity. Unfortunately, my name, Natalie, rhymes with fatally. So I, I have memories of, of that. You know, kids are kids are mean. And there's lots of information on this, too, that, you know, our kids that struggle with, with being overweight, they really bear the brunt of, of bullying and, and all kinds of meanness. But in any case, I um, struggled with my weight as a child. I remember it for, in fourth grade, I was, I weighed more then than I, than I do today. And I think in large part it had to just do with, you know, well-intending. My parents were well-intending, but they weren't really realizing the struggle I was facing. You know, they loved me for who I was. They didn't even really think about the, the problems with, with me and my weight. And then 
I don't know what clicked. Something clicked with them. Something clicked with me as I kind of went, started to go, get into adolescence. I really was motivated to want to be healthier. They were motivated to want to help me. And I started to eat better and, and healthier foods were available in my house. Before that, it had been a lot of TV dinners. I remember a summer of eating a hot dog every day for an entire summer. Um, just all kinds of, of junk. That changed a little bit as I got older, had a little more say. My parents were a little bit more clued in. I got more involved in sports at school. And, and fortunately for me, I was able to get through high school and through adolescence with at a healthy weight. And while it, you know, for all of us, we have to continue to eat healthy and be active to stay in a healthy place. For me, I've been, I've been very lucky and it's just part of who I am now to be at a healthy weight and to have a healthy lifestyle. But half the kids aren't so lucky. Half of kids, the, the older they are when they're struggling with overweight and obesity, the more likely they are to, to, to stay that way. So our teenagers are at high, highest risk. But even the younger kids, once you start on that path, it is very difficult to get off the path. And the further along you get on it, the harder it is. It can be a lifelong struggle for these kids. But I also just want to point out, you know, there's about 30% of kids that are overweight or obese. And there's over two-thirds of adults that are overweight or obese. So something is happening. Even you're getting through childhood and you're okay. But then as you get out into adulthood, get out into the world, something happens and that weight kind of keeps coming on. What I argue in the book and what I argue with my patients every day is we got to start these habits when we're kids. They've got to be something that we can help our kids so that when they go off on their own, they're still making smart choices. They've got the tools they need to live a healthy lifestyle for their whole life so they can get through childhood as well as adulthood in a healthy place with good eating habits and a commitment to physical activity. Do you find that... in your in your practice, for instance, I mean you're a, a, a community pediatrician. That people, parents and kids, make excuses for, uh, well, I can't help it because it's in my genes or it's hereditary. Because I hear a lot of that kinds of you know arguments, like it's not my fault. I don't really eat that much. It's and because whatever I eat, it doesn't make any difference. I still gain weight or I still get fat. So it, it's, there's something physically wrong with me. I I you know I hear that as an excuse. Yeah, it, it's a great point, and it's, it's interesting you say that because my dad also used to be very overweight, which is probably part of the reason that I struggled, but he later in life decided to get fit and to get healthier, and he's you know, made a commitment to, to lose a lot of weight, and he has, and he's kept it off. And when you ask him, you know, what, what happened, he says, you know, when I was younger, I just thought, you know, my whole family is overweight. It's just genetics. I can't do anything about it. He's like, and then, and I think it was his doctor telling him that he had to get his cholesterol down, but whatever. He's like, and then it clicks me. He's like, no, wait a minute. That's, that's, that's an excuse. Yeah, maybe my family is overweight. Maybe I'm going to have to struggle a little bit more. But that's no reason for me to continue to eat junk and for me to continue to not do, to not do anything and to not be active at all. And so he really made the steps to say, I have some control over this. I'm going to, whatever is within my power, I'm going to do it and make a difference. And yes, there's genetic factors that come into play, but the majority of obesity is not strictly related to genetics. And yes, once you already have struggled with your weight, it is difficult to keep the weight off. It is a continual process, but the benefits are enormous. And the taking that first step can make all the difference. So there's a struggle, there's a challenge, but it's really for the sake of the kids, for the sake of the family, I really encourage parents to get themselves prepared and start to take that first step to get themselves on a healthier path, and they will not regret it. 
take responsibility for your eating habits. You have choices. Fortunately, we do have choices here, particularly in the United States. And we have to, as you say in your book, you have to make those healthy choices. Now, as I understand it, you have two kids, um, and so and you're the expert. So how does that play out in your family with your two kids uh, eating healthy? <laughs> yes. So I have two kids who are four and two, and my four-year-old is uh, he's a typical four-year-old. He's got a mind of his own. He went through a very picky phase as a two-year-old um, where he he went a lot of nights without dinner, I have to say, because he just was like, I'm not, gonna, I'm not eating this. I'm like, okay, well, we're not making anything separate. Um, it's a process. I understand the struggle that parents face because it, it, it doesn't happen overnight. You have to really have a philosophy on how you're going to manage the situation, this authoritative parenting, division of responsibility, and let the kids come around. So for my four-year-old, he's come around. He has a much broader diversity of things that he likes to try. He's more willing to try things. But sometimes he still says, oh, green, I don't want it. I'm not going to try it. And so we think of different ways to help him to come around and the next time be willing to try it. On the other hand, my daughter, who is not quite two yet, and two is when that pickiness really sets in. It's, it's, we call it neophobia, which is the fear of wanting to try new things. So it's a developmental milestone. Parents of two-year-olds have struggled with this, you know, forever. Um, but one of the things that you can do to, to try to not have to struggle is to expose the younger kids when they're you know, one to two to as many different types of foods as you can so that they have those – they're willing to try everything when they're that age. So they already had a taste for it. It's not new to them. And so then when they develop this neophobia, you don't have to worry so much because they've pretty much tried everything. So that's what we're doing with my daughter, who is eager – to eat anything. You give her some raw spinach on her plate and she'll go for it. So she's had spicy food, she's had all kinds of seafood, she's had all, all kinds of vegetables. She's really you know, kind of been exposed to everything. And she still loves it. So we'll see as this two to three year old phase kind of comes around how she does. But it doesn't really matter because it's a process over time with the ultimate goal of helping the kids as they get older and are making more choices for themselves that they'll make the healthier choice and they'll understand why they're making the healthier choice and that's what they'll actually want to eat and what they'll crave, as you say. But and you still just brought up allowing... another, you have to emphasize another point, which I think we have to bring out, make sure that everyone understands this, that they have to be exposed to the good, allow, be, you know, exposure to all of these different kinds of food. If they're not exposed to it, if you just give them the same thing or very few choices every day, then they haven't had the opportunity to taste different kinds of food. I think that's really important. The other thing is I wanted to just ask you, what about you? I mean, you have a, as, as a, a, a couple um, um, parenting, uh, do you have to be on the same page with all of this, you know, um, the, the two parents, uh, so that, the, you know, the kids get the same message, or how does that work? Because you parents come from different backgrounds and different, uh, and maybe one's really overweight, maybe one's not, maybe one eats healthy, the other one doesn't. So you've got a, a whole, you know, family situation there with different types of parenting. That's a, that's a really great point. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it's, it's funny. You know, my husband, he's, he, you know, he's on board with, with the mission. He's pretty active himself and he eats fairly healthy, but he doesn't really love vegetables. <laughs> And he'll eat them because he knows they're good for him and because we're doing this for the kids. But sometimes he'll be like, you know, secretly with the kids out, he's like, really, we have to, you know, we're eating those Brussels sprouts tonight. But the, the key is he can't let them hear him say that. A, a dad or a mom or whoever who, you know, doesn't like spinach and then when spinach is served says, oh, yuck. Oh, wow, that's really powerful to those kids who are going to start saying, ew, yuck. So the parents have to be on the same page. They don't have to have the same 
preferences. They don't even have to follow the same habits necessarily. But for as far as the kids know, the parents have to see them both eating healthy and they have to see that they both value that healthiness. And then, you know, if one of the parents has a sweet tooth and needs to get their fix at some point, do it where the kids don't realize it or don't know. Don't sneak it and hide it in the house because the kids will find it if you hide it in the house. But maybe it's at work. Maybe it's on the way to work or way home from work where the kids are not watching, hearing, seeing that the parents have, you know, whatever it is that they're struggling to keep in check or whatever. But as far as the kids know, all the adult family members have to be on the same page and try to really follow what they want the kids to be following. What's the... I mean, uh, what, what, just the last question maybe this is, but uh, in your practice, um, who have you had the most success with? I mean, I assume that you have, you know, a pretty broad range of people that you see in the community. Um, who have been the most successful families in terms of, of what you talk about in your book, getting kids to uh, eat healthy, raise healthy eaters? Yeah. The most, you know, the most successful families are the ones who are ready to make the changes and to really commit to it. A lot of people talk about it. You can tell people information until they're blue in the face, but the reality of, of it is and reality of behavior change is people don't make changes and they're not successful until they really truly are invested and they are ready and the whole family is willing to make the sacrifices for the sake of the child. This typically comes in the form of a, of a kid who not always, but a kid who's already overweight, who's got signs of going of type 2 diabetes, it's either coming soon or it's already hit, has high blood pressure, has some kind of health problem already from their weight that makes a parent say, whoa, stop, I can't believe my child has the same illness as my mother or my grandparent. we got to make changes. Whatever it is that triggers them to say, this is not okay anymore, and then they really commit to the changes and the whole family commits. The, the kid can't so you do have it alone. to be ready for. We only got thirty seconds left, but I think that's really yeah. important. You got to be ready to make the change, whether it's because you, you know, bad health yeah. situation, whatever it is. But you have to be committed. It's been great having you on the show today. I want to mention your book again, Doctor Natalie Digamuth. Eat your vegetables and other mistakes parents made. Redefining how to raise healthy eaters. You can buy the book bookstores everywhere, online. Give us a website, and then we'll say goodbye. Yeah, Dr. Natalie Muth, M-U-T-H dot com is my website to get more information. It's been a pleasure to be on, and thank you very much for having me and to the listeners for, for listening and tuning in. Thank you so much. Uh, we're going to uh, take a short break right now. Uh, my next guest is Harvard medical expert Margaret Moore, a.k.a. Coach Meg, and her book is Organize Your Mind, Organize Your Life. We'll be back in a minute. I'm Catherine Sosh, your social worker with a microphone on VoiceAmericanVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. We all want to be happy, but consider that conventional thinking is what got us where we are now. The good news is there's so much more to know that can give us a new and higher perspective. Tune in to A New View of Life with host Kathy Kirk as we unlock the conversational gridlock in America by exploring new ideas and new information on every aspect of life which is needed to move us not just forward, 
Albert Upward. A new view of life airs live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you struggling to find hope in the middle of adversity? How confident are you in dealing with your life challenges? Do you realize you have the ability to overcome your obstacles? You'll want to tune in to Louise Cohen's Changing Obstacles into New Possibilities. Louise will speak to inspiring guests who have helped others or managed to overcome the roadblocks that stood in the way of their life success. Louise Cohen's Changing Obstacles into New Possibilities broadcasts live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone. You are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Listen to us every Wednesday, 10 to 11, live, and we archive the show at the end of the day. Well, today we've been talking about sort of health, wealth, and happiness, but uh, living healthy lifestyles. And so my second guest is going to uh, address uh, how one can live a healthy lifestyle. Margaret Moore, Organize Your Mind, Organize Your Life. Uh, this is the title of her new book, and she has co-authored the book with Paul Hammerness. He's a psychiatrist. Uh, she is a, an executive wellness coach uh, and is co-director of the Institute of Coaching at McLean Hospital, which is a teaching affiliate of Harvard Medical School, and the founder and CEO of Well, well Coaches Corporation, which is a leading coach training school. So that's great. So if we organize our minds, we can organize our lives. Uh, sounds good to me. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Margaret. Wonderful to be here, Catherine. Okay, so you two co-authored this book, uh, Organizing Your Mind and Organizing Your Life. I did, you know, it's it's not so easy to do today, and obviously in the book you point out all of the kind of the pitfalls that we all get into and uh, how to overcome them. So uh, let's start. Um, you know, we do find ourselves, I'll speak for myself, I, I sometimes find myself in a perpetual state of frenzy, stress, and distraction, and uh, you say those are all a symptoms of a disorganized mind. So what can I do for myself? What can you do for me? <laughs> yes, great. Yes, we're all in the same boat. You know, whether you're a radio host, a CEO, a mom or dad taking kids, we've all come to a place where the frenzy and the static is kind of like we're walking around in a beehive with buzzing bees. <laughs> We can't find our way through. You know, we we now know how the uh, from neuroscience, um, particularly in the study of ADD, we now know how the br- brain was designed to be organized. And um, it turns out that we're not actually living in a way, we're not using our brains in a way to be organized. So we are finding ourselves in this chaotic place. And it's not about to-do lists. It's not about apps. It's really about organizing your brain so that you move um, in the small and big things in life from the, the weeds, you know, where you sort of are chasing your tail and not sure where, up to the strategic big picture. And when you get to that, when you're able to get to that place back, you know, back and forth throughout your days, then, oh, boy, you feel organized. So, okay, you're, but you were very, very specific about how we can do this, okay? And I guess you describe those as, the six principles or rules of order, how we can achieve this kind of mental clarity and focus in our lives. Um, how 
maybe we should go through some of the, the rules of order in terms of how to do that. Yes, there are six rules of order, um, and they work in a stepwise process, and we've got the neuroscience and then lots of tips. And so, so let's start with the first one, which is, you know, we're talking about frenzy and negative emotions, static, you know, whether you're sad, angry, frustrated, impatient, whatever they are, um, they travel to the thinking brain and they dim the lights. And so then we can't think straight, and we certainly can't be creative and productive. And so the first thing we um, we suggest is that you do what we call taming the frenzy, taming the emotional frenzy, and getting to a positive, calm state. Um, there is an optimal ratio of positive to negative thoughts that puts your brain into a good state for focusing, and that is three to one, three positives to every negative. And so if you can switch to a positive thinking things you're grateful for, appreciating, and just sweep away the negative just for the time when you're focusing. It'll come back, but then you can actually really focus your all of your brain's resources on something. You know, when you talk about taming the frenzy, a lot of, I, um, well, I have a lot of friends and colleagues who are very creative people who are, uh, you know, writers, painters, uh, you know, people like that. And it seems to me, Sometimes when they're chaotic and frenzied like that, that's their most productive times. You know, if we is is there a danger in getting too organized? You know, that's a good point because um, the simplest way to think about this is that you've got the left brain people who are very organized and have trouble accessing their creativity and the right brain people who are very creative and sometimes have trouble accessing a little order and structure. And, you know, we both need more of the things we don't have. Um, so, yes, creative people need, sometimes they need the chaos um, for the new ideas and the new perspectives and the, and the brilliance to emerge, um, but they also need to have the order in, at times, too. So, so it's really about balancing both, you know, getting things done and then having the freedom and the chaos to sort of let things emerge, too. All right, well, what about the next one? I, I know one of the things that you say, you have to sustain your attention, uh, you know, focus. Uh, how do we get ourselves to do that? I mean, there's just so much information coming in, so many tasks to complete. You know, I have a list today, um, uh, Coach Meg, of about 60 things that <laughs> have to be done, yes. and they need yeah, to be done I by know. 6 o'clock tonight. So uh, that's not a I mean, I've got this list thing. They say if you write it out and you make a list, it's going to help, I guess, tame the frenzy. I didn't say that you said that, but um, and it will help me to focus. <laughs> will it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you, the, 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 the good news is that you know what you have to get done, but the bad news is that it might lead you to be multitasking and, and trying to do several things at the same time, and that is really not good for the brain. The brain doesn't work by scattering and splattering. It works by focusing everything on one thing at a time. Um, and so you may want to break your list down to what are the things that need really good focus time and, and that really matter here and make sure you set aside with no distractions and tame your frenzy, you know, 15 minutes slots or 20 minutes, whatever they need and really get those big pieces done with the best of your brain resources. Um, and, and that way you'll feel productive, you'll be energized. When you try to do too many things at once, you, you just totally exhaust your brain. And so then, 
you don't have the capacity to get enough done and you feel completely spent by the end of the day. And we started by talking about healthy lifestyles. You don't have the energy to live a healthy lifestyle, to cook, to, you know, go for a walk, to connect with your family. So, so it all goes together, you know, doing the, the important things well and, um, and then you've got energy left in the bank. So what do you do? What let's say you're doing that, or you do it to the best of your ability, and then something happens that you didn't plan on. Like yesterday, my refrigerator died, and I had to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it really did. It was over, and I had to go buy another refrigerator. Well, that was not in my plans for the day. So, yeah. But, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think you know that's what happens. To, um, things happen, and the 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 plan goes to is shot, and you know the, then it, you really choose how to respond to that. You can sort of laugh and say, "Well, it's an adventure. You know, it's not what I planned," and stay on a positive note because at some point you're probably going to have to go buy the fridge. So it just happens to be now and not later. If you allow it to, oh my gosh, you know, here we go again, and oh the overwhelm. We so often choose overwhelm and ch- instead of choosing adventure and and fun and you know here's what's going on and i think we then create more frenzy and then we don't enjoy the task in front of us even if it's buying a fridge yeah i think that you know that's a that's a great answer because yes instead of becoming overwhelmed we can view it as an adventure as a challenge as a as a you know as an exciting challenge uh and so i guess it is it's just how we perceive you know whatever it is that happens to us that's that's a good point okay let's next i want to just talk about like you say apply the brakes um you know know when to stop an action or know when something's you're doing something that's counterproductive sometimes we're not even aware it's kind of like mindful meditation you really have to be aware of what you're doing if you're in if you're in this kind of frenzied chaotic state and you're not focusing so you have to constantly kind of be aware of your behavior. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So what is often typical for us is that we are hijacked all day long by distractions. And we're not, and and we do it without even realizing it. You know, like something comes in and you just jump on it and you didn't even stop, take a breath and make a conscious decision. Next thing you find yourself doing another thing and you didn't, it's not what you started. And so we lose control. We lose control of the brakes and the brain does come installed with brakes. And if we can take a breath and notice the distraction and have, as I describe in the book, a little heart to head conversation, you know, what's the head want to do? What's the heart want to do about the distraction? That Make the decision consciously and then either go with the distraction intentionally because that's the right thing to do, or stay with the focus. So it is about bringing that mindful, you know, awakeness to, you know, the the distractions and managing them really well. Yeah, and I think that's probably the the, the one thing that that I have difficulty doing. I think that's that's probably my number one, probably nemesis, I guess, uh, really important to do that. Um, can you give us, like, specific examples? I always like examples of... Uh, uh, individuals in certain situations who get caught up in all this and aren't able to stop and uh, think about what's counterproductive or get caught up in the frenzy and, and can't sustain their attention. Different work situations or situations with family, because I know listeners like to hear, like, you know, the, the real stories. Yeah, so so let's start with um, uh, work I w- uh, example. I was just in a meeting in New York City, and, and we, were, we had a really uh, a big agenda, lots of intense conversation, and someone checked the website for some a big news event, and, and they got very <laughs> frenzied. 
<laughs> because they checked, you know, it was in the middle of the meeting, it wasn't at all essential, and was lost, or, or you know, you, you've got a phone call from someone and you take it when you're in the middle of something important, and then it's challenging. Of course, it's not so challenging when you stand back from it, but it sends you off in a tizzy. And so sometimes we, we you know, we succumb to the distraction, which turns out to send us off in a frenzy, and then we pollute what we're working on. And so you have to be very careful about when you, you know, you allow yourself to be distracted, because then it will sabotage what you're doing. Um, and so we have so many tools for distraction now. I mean, I'm thinking, just as you're giving this <laughs> yeah. as an example, this is one thing that I do that every time I do it, I want to kick myself. I'm on the phone, I get a call waiting, and I take the call waiting, or I have several phones in the house, and I will, or an end in my office, and I'll pick up another line, and rather than focusing on the call that I am on, and then it's somebody wanting money, or it's somebody, it's something that's totally not something that I should have picked up another phone for or even gone to call waiting. And that's kind of what you're talking about. I mean, just... Yeah, you know. next thing you know, you've been hijacked and the thing that was important doesn't get attention. And, and at home, you know, where this really matters is when you want to connect with your spouse or your kids because that's where we do tend to be distracted and multitasking and, and, and when we don't give our full undivided attention to the person we're talking to. And, and we allow ourselves to be distracted like we just can't put our iPhones down. We gotta look at the next text or the, and what we, when we do that, we send the message to the other person, you don't, you're not important. You don't matter. You know, it's far more important than I check this text. And so we really, damage our relationships and 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 that's i think a huge price to pay for distractibility you know when when the most nourishing thing we can do in our days is often just to sit and really connect with people who matter if just even for a few moments when we focus on nothing else and when we throw our whole attention back front right left down uh, top down all of our brains resources on another person they just light up and so why feel... do we do this, though? Why do we do this? We know this cognitively, we, right? I mean, emotionally, yeah. we're doing something else because we are. We're reacting to the a phone call or something else that's not important, but instead of focusing on our friend or our partner or our lover or whomever it is or our child, why do we do that? Where, where yeah, does that well, come from let, in the brain? Yeah, we've let our brains get really tired. When the brain, when the uh, thinking brain is tired, then it it doesn't manage negative emotions. It doesn't manage distractions. It can't manage impulses. It just gives up. It succumbs. And so, if we're hungry, if we're, you know, not fit, if we haven't slept well, if we've been multitasking all day, it's like the brain is so depleted. We've had no brain breaks. We've had no chance to recharge. And it's just exhausted. And that we live in this state of chronic, chronic stimulation. And so, and so the, what, what I've learned, the, probably the biggest thing I've learned from this book, is the immense value of brain breaks. Just a couple minutes here and there, um, whether you start your day with a, with a good one, whether you, you know, every hour or half hour, just a minute or two, move your body, breathe, do something, um, you know, that makes you feel good. And if you populate your day with little bits of, of brain breaks, then you recharge your brain's battery. And, you know, do you ever come back to your email and think, oh, would these emails stop coming in? You know, like, would they just stop? Please stop. 
And that's when your brain's tired. Once you've had a brain break and you've recharged, you'll, you'll know you're recharged because you'll come back and you'll be really excited to hear what com- to see what comes in. So your 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 mood completely changes when you've given your brain just a little bit of a rest, so it can bounce back and and do what it does well, which is to focus. You are so right, and I I did this. I you know I, I read your book. And, and maybe I did this because I read your book, but I was on uh, a vacation for three or four days in Cape Cod with my boyfriend, and I decided to do just what you're talking about, take a brain break. I did not respond to my emails. I did not make any calls, and I did not take any incoming calls. I just enjoyed those three or four days. I mean, I had people write, where are you, what's happening, but there were no emergencies. And boy, it felt so good. It was great. And so when I came back, well, yeah, then I was ready to reconnect with everybody. But that was the brain break. And that really works. It really does. It was difficult to do it, at least the first day. But then after that, it was like, wow, I don't have to be on my cell phone all the time. I don't have to be responding to everybody's email. So brain breaks, um, it does work. Yes, it does, and, and, and we have to train ourselves to do it. We've got to get used to doing it, but the brain will change, and then it will it becomes an automatic habit to take a brain break. And then, of course, everybody gets your full attention. Every project gets your full attention. Um, I did the same. I had four days off. I was in London, and I woke up in, uh, in the hotel the, the, four, the fifth day, and I had the best idea I've had in a year. Just lying there, it just came to me. I thought, you know, this is the... This is the prize. You know, boy, I have a brilliant idea that I, I don't know that it would even have occurred to me if I had just been work, 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 work. So, so it isn't even just the rest. It's you actually, you know, you do amazing things when you've had breaks. Yeah, so you generate new ideas. You become much more productive. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff that happens. Well, I guess it's the same thing, you know, physically. If you over-exercise just physically, if you do too much, if you're physically running around, your body needs to relax, it needs to to rest, and then you'll be able to accomplish more, whatever the physical activity is. So it's the same thing, I think, isn't it? Yes, exactly, yeah. Everything in balance, you know, your body... Your body is designed to um, to have stress and then recover. So your heart beats, it goes up, and then it recovers. You breathe in and you breathe out, and and that's how, how why the heart can go on for you know ninety five years because it it's stressed and then it rests. And so if you can find that rhythm of you know stress and then recovery, stress and then recovery, then you know you'll you'll recharge your brain, you'll recharge your body, you'll reconnect with people in far you know more um, um, rich ways. Um, you'll do better at work, and and you know we we've just lost this wisdom um, in our time, and it's really time to get it back. And now we've got the biological you know science to to prove it. Margaret, in your book, you have um, actual inventories, as you call them, quizzes, exercise, so that people can help uh, identify their own personal areas of weakness because everybody has different areas of weakness that they need to fix or focus on. So how do these quizzes or exercises work? What do you do? Well, there really are different tips and, and approaches for each area. So whether you want new approaches to tame frenzy or new ways to really focus beautifully or handle distractions or access your memory better or um, shift your focus um, and allow the creativity to come up or connect the dots, we basically got 
a set of exercises for each. And you're right. We may, we, you know, I had the one, the area that I really needed, which was the, which was the brain breaks. It's not the focus. I can focus, but I had trouble unfocusing. Someone else may have great difficulty and challenge with frenzy. Someone else with creativity and, uh, or shifting focus, all of it without, you know, um, carrying along all, you know, your, all your to-do list with you. And so you sort of got to stand back and say, oh, where's the place for me to start where, where I would make, I could actually make some real strides. And then you, then what happens is you start to have a little hope because you think, oh, I can't change my brain. I mean, I can't imagine. I feel really stuck. It just seems to, it just runs on its own all day, you know. And then when you make a small change, then you think, Oh wow! I can actually calm myself down, or or yeah, I can focus on one thing at a time and then focus all of my attention on the next thing. Oh, and I can take a brain break, or I, I, I can um, go for a walk. And boy, you know, here comes the creative idea that didn't come when I was focusing. Isn't that interesting? It happened when I wasn't focused. You know, so you you have to play with lots of little ways to improve your brain function, and when you get the joy of it working. Boy, now you know you can change your brain, and there's great hope, and you really could have an organized mind. So, Margaret, does this have to do with the plasticity of the brain? You know, we used to think the brain can't change; it was stagnant. That was it, whatever. Yeah. But now, this whole issue, this whole new science, I guess, of plasticity and, and uh, yeah. your brain—if you do—if your behavior changes, your brain will actually change. Is that what you're talking about? Yes, that's right. So, so neuroscientists describe it as how the brain learns. And the brain learns by growing new connections. So you have a new insight. Ah, I'm going to try that. Little connection gets formed in the brain. You go do something, another connection gets formed in the brain. You get some feedback, another insight. And then over time, you know, it's usually months, um, you then actually lay down a whole new network. And so now you have a day where, you know, you, you start out calm, you get the important things done, you have brain breaks, you have some impulsive time during the day, you, you arrive home at the end of the day with a lot of energy, you know, you, you uh, really enjoy your evening with, um, with your family, and, and then you sleep well. And when you, when you actually get all these things together, you know, I've got a new network on my brain. This is not the same way I used to operate. And so, yeah, we, there's real hope that, yes, we can, we can, in fact, because in a way what we're doing is the wiring is already there for these functions. Unless you have ADD, which only 5% of us do, then much of this wiring is there. It just hasn't been activated. You know, we and have breaks. Work, break. This will also work for older people, middle-aged people. I mean, it's not just for younger people. I mean, even aging, like 50s, 60s, 70s, it's still you can change your brain in the way that you're describing? Yes, you can change. Your brain will learn till the last breath. <laughs> well, that's the brain. You, so you, yes, it, your brain never stops learning. Um, as long as you're, you know, learning. I mean, you've got to be doing new things and, and trying new things and experimenting and, and, um, you know, and so as long as you're learning, your brain is changing. And, and I think the difference is that in each age, stage of life, we have different, different circumstances. Um, I think the, era, the age with um, perhaps the most challenging level of frenzy is college and in your 20s, when you're trying to get launched in the adult world and you're totally overwhelmed and you just, and so, and then you, you layer on top of that today's devices, which, you know, mean that kids are texting 600 times a day and, 
and and then they get to college and they can't, you know, they've just never learned to organize their brains. And so I think that's a really tough era. Um, when we're we're older, often the the fifties and sixties, often we we um, may be calmer. We do get to be calmer as we get. We you know we 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 roll with things better. We we absorb. The, the shocks of life, you know, we've got better shock absorber, absorbers, but we still may have sources of stress, and we, we still may want to up our learning, so then we want to be experimenting and trying new things and staying agile. So the, the brain um, it, it has a lot of agility when we're young, um, but if we don't keep learning, then it can get kind of stuck, and it's harder to be creative, and, it's hard, and so you want to keep your brain Active. So you want to keep your body active, which will make your brain more active. And then you want to, you know, you want to, for one of the great ways to improve access to your memory, which is really relevant right now, is to intentionally really listen to two opposing sides to perspective. I mean, just pick any topic that's hot politically and, and really allow yourself to fully appreciate and respect one side and then the other. And that helps you better access your working memory and it gives you more cognitive agility. So you don't want to get set in your views and set in your ways. You really want to challenge yourself to see different perspectives. And then kind of the filing cabinets in the brain work better. You'll remember more um, and you'll be able to move uh, and learn, um, learn better. That is great advice for all those baby boomers out there and that's a huge population. It's a good thing to end on. Um, I want to mention the book again, Organize Your Mind, Organize Your Life, Train Your Brain to Get More Done in Less Time. Uh, Margaret Moore, a.k.a. Coach Meg, thanks so much for sharing all of this with us today. Really helpful. Great to be here, Catherine. Yep, really enjoyed it. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you have been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management.